I imagine that many of you that watch this show on YouTube and listen to it on whichever podcast app you prefer also watch and listen to The Hawk's Nest with Brandon Kane. And you should. One of the really outstanding Seahawks shows out there. Well, Brandon is joining me on the show today so you get the best of both worlds. And we get into some cool stuff. Brandon does some tape breakdowns and X and O evaluations. We're going to talk a lot about the defensive front, some of the news that's happened there this week with personnel, some of the things he's seen from Bobby Wagner in his return to Seattle. We'll talk about some of the more newsy items on the roster, the running back room, his concerns there. And of course, we'll talk about that outstanding young secondary and what he sees from the Seahawks young guns there. Brandon Kane of the Hawks Nest joins me on this edition of Seahawks Forever. Welcome to the Seahawks Forever podcast, in-depth analysis on everything Seahawks. And now here's your host, Dan Viennes. Been promising you for a little bit, and he is here with us today, host of the fantastic Hawks Nest podcast. Brandon Kane is joining the show. Brandon, thanks for taking the time and uh, getting together with me on this today. Uh, thank you for having me in your house here, man. I appreciate uh, jumping in and, and chopping it up a bit. So appreciate the uh, extension of the invite. It's nice this time of year, right? We get stuff to talk about. We get new, fresh stuff to talk about after having to be really creative for a couple of months uh, well, what, the first five days of training camp are in the bag. Um, let's just start with the wide-angle view. What are your your kind of overall general impressions based on what you've seen and heard so far? Well, I've uh, you, like me, have been through a few decades of watching this team, and uh, I don't know if I can remember, I was thinking about this, contemplating it last night, if I've ever heard of a rookie wide receiver getting the kind of hype and praise that we're hearing from Jackson Smith and Jigba. I, I think maybe Joey Galloway was my best guess. He was he was kind of lighting it up early on. He was yeah. certainly very impressive. But even DK was not at this level a couple of years ago. He was playing well. He was getting pub. It's not to say that DK just could suddenly flashed the first moment he started playing. But this kid is lighting it up almost on a daily basis. There's a new clip coming out. And I'm not usually one to start talking about rookie wide receivers that are due to be our slot receivers. But, I mean, the guy is – is being very impressive across the yeah. board in, in a way where it's I, I'm not a guy likes to throw out words special when we haven't seen him in practice and pat or in pads or playing games we'll see where it goes when it gets to that but that part stood out to me is that just over and over you're hearing that um uh, obviously we're also rookie wise Kenny McIntosh with some of those cuts you're seeing with mm -hmm. him and and what he's doing is being tremendously impressive um on some of those cuts I mean those are legit great vision presses the hole that they're showing a little bit of an acumen there that's not just a rookie that's I run real fast I just won't go fast you yeah. know Ricky Bobby in it you know Andrew in that <laughs> um and then of course we've got the beast mode curses I've dubbed it that's live and well right now going yeah. on in training camp with our top two running backs our prize two second rounders in back-to-back -back years Sitting on the sidelines, one with a shoulder injury that sounds ever increasingly more grave a little bit, especially listening to Coach Carroll talk about it. Uh, defensively, uh, the defense in its opportunistic ways stands out to me early on. Uh, I think that there's a kind of a combination here of a little bit. I was working like a starting pitcher in training camp or in spring training. I, I'm getting confused on sports. But, uh, <laughs> and, you know, they do this in spring training where these guys will work on a curveball or I got to work on this third pitch. Mm -hmm. And they're going to try to lean on it too much in the games or in practices where you, your interception doesn't really matter. It's him trying to maybe work. But it's also, I think, notable that you have them on these kind of seven-on-seven -seven drills or in moments here where they're not in pads. It's usually to the advantage of the offense. And I think that the defense getting these interceptions and picks, not even with Tariq Woolen on the football field, 
is also kind of a carryover from what we saw last year from the defense and that they had some things that we're not good at. Yeah. But one of the things that they did really well was being opportunistic and getting those getting those turnovers. So that stood out. Michael Jackson, too. And and sure. I think that that his, this has been a hotly I don't know if debated item in your kind of community. It's been in mind with, oh, you know, he can't be getting better. He can't have improved. Right. He can't still be now reaching into his prime. It's that Devin Witherspoon's got to be kind of sucking for if he's not able to overtake Mike Jackson. So it's been kind of at the fore, forefront, the early things that, you know, have stood out. Of course, today, once we get to the padded practices and start, this starts popping, then we'll get a little bit more from the, the trenches. Yeah. Uh, you touched on it yesterday. Seven on seven sounded really, really entertaining. A lot of back and forth. No one really coming out on top and uh, Gino throwing uh, what was reported to be three picks, but also throwing some some beautiful uh, touchdowns. The one toe tapper to Jackson Smith and Jigba that is one of the clips I'm sure you're referencing. Yeah. Um, and then digging in a little bit, um, had a conversation with some people who were at the workout yesterday. Um, you know, one of those one of those Gino picks was a tip ball. Uh, one was a ball that should have been caught, um, but also just some nice plays by the defense. And and I look at it, and I saw it on Twitter, and I'm sure you did too. Immediately, there are there are still Gino has still some some doubters that uh oh uh oh are we concerned <laughs> yeah. about the turnovers again? And um, but but we don't know the context. We don't know is he taking more chances in practice, trying just trying to make some plays happen, knowing that they don't count. Right. Or is the defense getting better? It's probably a good thing, isn't it, that it does go back and forth, that one unit isn't dominating the other? We've had it in recent years where that has been the case, by the way, in seasons where then that showed itself come the regular season where one side of the ball was handling business. The other side of the ball is like, well, it's a little rough right now. Pass rushers aren't winning against the offensive linemen. Any one of ones, it's defense ain't doing a whole lot. And often, so it's good they are both going back forth. To your point on that as well. The, I believe that a lot of these things, interceptions came down when they were in the red zone. Yeah. And a big thing that you've probably heard at and I've heard about spoken by many Seahawks fans over and over again is that DK's got to get more effective down by the red zone. Mm-hmm. Gina's got to get more effective in, 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 in using, he's a big body. They got a Calvin Johnson, that stuff down there, Calvin him. And so I think what they were kind of doing, it sounded like a little bit of let's get better with between me and you, D, DK and Gino on our chemistry down here and try to tighten this up. And the only way to do that is to get better at it is to have a guy that's actually covering there and truly cover, not that you're throwing to space on a lob ball that you throw 20 times over and you're like, oh, we got it. You got to do it with the guy pressing up on DK, working off the physicality, understanding the timing, then to Gino for the back corner throw at that point. How much arc do I need to put onto it? Um, this was, I mean, a thing that they used to go back and forth with with uh, Russell and, and Carol, a notable story. I remember Brandon Marshall talking about how there was a, a at one point a kind of a tete-a-tete between them regarding how to throw the fade ball in the in the in the end zone. Yeah. So it's it seems like a straightforward throw, but there's a little bit of nuance there with it. And if you can know that, look, I can throw this pick and coach is not gonna jump down my throat. Because he knows I'm settled here, he knows I'm going to protect the ball when we get to the games, and he also understands what I'm trying to do, which is work on something that was a deficiency for us last year. We weren't very good in red zone. We need to improve in that. This is the way to kind of do that. That's where not all the picks, but I think that's where a lot of this is really more coming from rather than it's Gino being wild and free with the ball and look, Gino back to his old ways, you know. Yeah, well, and I, I'd I'd rather a guy in in a practice setting, you know, take some chances and see what he can get away with. You know that I I always when I think about Gino and what he did last year, I keep thinking back to that the winning throw to DK at the end of the Rams game down at SoFi Stadium, and that's a throw that if you're being cautious, you're not even attempting. 
You're not, it's mm. a tight window against Jalen Ramsey in a tough situation. So, you know, it, I love the baseball analogy. We'll see it sometimes, you know, and Emerson Hancock gives up nine runs and then you find up out afterwards that it's, you know, he was throwing nothing but two seamers or whatever. And, and, uh, so yeah, uh, I like hearing, I guess if I had to lean one way or the other, I like hearing the defense is making plays. Um, you, you mentioned it right off the top and let's talk about it first. Cause it's the most newsworthy thing I think to come out of yesterday's workout when, Pete Carroll uh, spoke after practice. It's the running back situation. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were feeling as good as anyone in the league because while everyone else is dealing with salary issues and cut issues and, and veterans threatening to hold out, we've got a stacked young running back room because they've devoted those kind of draft assets to it over the last couple of years. And then we show up to training camp. Kenneth Walker isn't, isn't running. Uh, Zach Charbonnet is not in pads. And we didn't hear until yesterday why. Walker doesn't sound like a big deal. They're just being cautious. Don't want to mess around with the groin. But as positive and optimistic as Pete can be to a fault sometimes when talking about injuries, uh, it sounded ominous with that they yeah. don't know what's going on with the shoulder. It wasn't through contact. It wasn't through working out. It just kind of came up. Um, does that one concern you in, in the running back room as a whole? How much sleep are you losing over this? Well, it's, and you mentioned it, it, Dan, you have the same probably feeling I do. Of You have a, a coach, we have a unique situation with having a general manager and coach here this many years on so many levels as far as perception goes, because you do start to learn them. It, mm -hmm. it is, you know, hello, old friend. I know that face. I know yeah. what you're thinking. And even as, as they're very good poker players and that they're not guys that wear their heart on the sleeve and you know exactly what they're always thinking, they're great about keeping things under wraps. But you're right, when it comes to Pete and injuries, he is a guy that is optimistic. The glass is not half full, it's three-fourths full. In fact, it's just about overflowing. It just hasn't quite happened yet. <laughs> so when he does start to speak about those injuries being like that, where it's, you know, the face goes a little gray, you know, gets the long face, and you go, I don't know, I don't know, we'll check it, uh, we'll check it out. Yeah. You know, we're checking out, we're checking out. You know, oh, that's that's akin to dear God, they might have to remove his arm. Uh, that's <laughs> where, you know, where we're at right now. So yeah, it's yeah. It, it's it's tough. I, it's one of the things that I do try to do and I look at this from an analyst perspective is always be evolving a little bit. You go to me 10 years ago and I certainly would have been probably one of those people that said on the new age analytical front, oh no, just get your stack up of your six, seventh rounders and you'll be fine with it. I, I have found myself shifting in this different direction of this. I think you do have to try to go for a little more quality. I don't want to necessarily pay guys, but I do like the approach they've taken getting these guys to the second round. I do like the approach of building up the deep backfield because they're also recognizing Damn, since 2015, this I call it, I joke that it's the beast mode curse, but it, yeah. it literally is. Every single year, I'm not talking one, I'm not talking two, I'm not talking three, I'm talking all four of your guys wrecked to the point that you got to go onto the streets and pull some guy off the streets from his normal job to tote the rock that next Sunday. Yeah. And uh, they've taken lengths to try to fix it. It's not the front office's fault. It's not anybody's fault. It's just snake bit stuff is yeah. where I look at it with it. So I'm worried. And uh, I, I think he will come back from the groin walker. They are, you're right. That one, you got to just rest it and you got to let it get hundred percent because it can rebite. You get it to that 97%, that 3% left can make it rebite if they cut weird or wrong. It's got to go all, it's like a hammy. Got to go all the way with it. Um, but the shoulder ones, yeah, I'm, I'm getting worried on that. It'll be interesting to see how they handle the running back position Friday at the mock game. Uh, you know, does, does McIntosh get a bunch of touches to get him ready or now do they take it easy with him because they don't want to lose a third guy. They don't want DJ Dallas to be their number one back come opening week. Um, can't wait to see how I they... would be with him. Yeah. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, there's, there's really, you can't have an, another guy at this point going down with it. You need yeah. to, you know, deal with the situation for what it is. Nick Belorton. 
Nick Ford, <laughs> let's go. Full back dives all day. Uh, let's talk about defense because this is um, this is something that you have uh, taken some deep dives into over the offseason. Uh, some of your film breakdowns are outstanding. And uh, we're going to get into some some details about some personnel there. But the biggest news also this week, I think it was Wednesday, the first workout, where Pete just dropped a bomb on us at the end of practice that, oh, by the way, Jaron Reed's playing nose tackle now. Playing at full time, we're depending on him and we're quote unquote building it around him. And there was even a follow up question. Did you just say Jaron Reed's playing nose tackle? And Pete said, Yeah, that's what I said. Uh, your thoughts on that specifically, his his fit there, and also what it says about that lineup. Um, I think that what they're doing with Jaron Reed is is he's going back to the origins um of what he was as a player. And what I mean by that is when he was coming out of Alabama, he was a pure one tech coming out of Alabama. He was a guy that was going to be taken on double team blocks on the line of scrimmage, holding the line. You couldn't push him anywhere, strong as an ox. And then he could give you a little bit tinch of pass rush from Alabama at that time. Wasn't known for just a titch. Yeah. But you even go back and look at, for instance, his PFF grades back at Alabama at that time. His run defense grades were outstanding. His pass rush. Not as much. And so he that's comes why he to fell Seattle. to the second round. Yeah. That's why he fell to the second round. Exactly. And so he uh he comes to Seattle and Seattle's got a big hole at three tech. Michael Michael Bennett's on his way out, right? Or just have just left. I can't remember right about that time. And so you had nobody there at three tech. And so the coaching staff got creative. And they're like, man, this guy kind of gives us some juice when we kick him over to the three. You know, he can kind of he can kind of work over there a little bit. Why we've got Puna Ford already here now. You know, yeah. we've got some big dogs down here already on the one tech. We don't really need to make that redundant. And so I, what happened from that is that Jaron Reed then leaned into that a little bit. And so he's, I've seen this now at times with some interior pass rushers in the league as a trend, Dan. And that is a, a guy like Javon Hargrave is a great uh, example of this, who the Niners signed to a four-year, $80 million deal this offseason. A guy who starts with the Steelers as a run defender, but then who, once he goes to the Eagles, you can see, even if just looking at the, the PFF grades with him, where he, he transitions from going, I don't really want to do the run defense stuff anymore. It's, it's getting the sacks that's going to get me paid. That's going to get money in my pocket. Nobody's paying for the run defense. Go ask yeah. Snacks Harrison about how, how much you get paid for being a run defender only. Right. So he leaned into that, you know, and that came at the, the cost a little bit of his run defense, in my opinion, over the course of his career. Smartly so for Jaron, it's probably made him a lot of money. But it doesn't not mean that he doesn't have those origins that he can fall back into and play back into that role that he played before. Like Carol said, he is big. He's the, He's got the waist, three, thir- 320, 330 out there, yeah. strong, as I said, as an ox. So he's got all the components to make it work on the inside. He's just going back to what you know he was basically at Alabama. We don't have as much that need anymore for the three tech. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So this speaks to, or it might potentially speak to, what they feel like the readiness is of Cam Young to contribute as a rookie. And you did, <laughs> you did a show a couple of months ago, and you brought up, you did a film breakdown, you brought up some legitimate concerns you had. You don't hate the pick. You don't hate the player. You see some upside, but you had concerns about his ability to contribute as a rookie. Um, talk a little bit about your feelings on Cam Young, but also does moving Reed over there now make you feel better about that spot? 
tremendously better. Um, I, I was trying to definitely with Cam Cameron Young. He's a big guy who's very strong. And there's a lot of people that are very much on board in a way that I kind of wasn't as much. As you said, I didn't hate it, but it's it's definitely the film was problematic in a couple of different respects. Um, he's doing a lot of slanting on his film, which makes it hard when you're trying to assess a defensive yeah. lineman's responsibility if he's just trying to. And Pete and John even said that in the evaluation. That was a challenge they had. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is tough. But then there are also those snaps in there where it's not slanting and where you're you're looking for it. And the thing I have is a problem of, of making the excuse on the slanting front is and we'll talk, I'm sure, a little bit about this, this gap and a half scheme. You know, there's times you're going to do what would be like a slant where you're you're shooting to one gap, one side, maybe not a full slant because you're actually getting a little upfield. But you are shooting to one thing and you need to have a recognition to get back to the backside gap. And so there's so much of him slanting where he's just blindly, you know, running down the line of scrimmage and, and the ball carrier is going right past his ear hole and he's just not aware of it happening. And then you mix that with a lot, complete lack of pass rush. There are no moves at all from that. So you come back and go, okay, he's not a pass rusher. I'm okay with that. I don't tend to expect my zero techs to be able to rush the passer anyway. I mean, if they can push the pocket, great. But you're, are you a really upper level run defender then? Are we getting that from you in the fourth round? Can I mm. count on you to be immovable? And there were times with the double team blocks where he was able to be moved off the line of scrimmage. He was not like I talked about with Jaron Reed, where you'd watch, go watch Alabama tape with Jaron Reed. Nobody's moving him off the line of scrimmage. Nobody, no two blockers anywhere getting him off. He's going to yeah. sit right down and hunker down. That's what he's going to do. And I didn't see enough of that on Cameron Young's tape um, to where it really stood out that there is power, there is length, there is, he's got the size and all of that you'd like to put together. And so I'm, I'll trust in this Yox evaluation of it, but I certainly didn't think day one, you wanted this guy to be to your point, your day one starter out there yeah. at the zero tech. I didn't think he was going to be ready. Now the, the other kind of, uh, collateral damage, if you will, or, or certainly, a uh, another unintended or intended effect of moving read over to the nose is what it does to the defensive end position in that hybrid three, four scheme. So now you take him out of that mix, although in certain situations he could still play there. Does it weaken your depth there to the point that you feel like they're a body or two short? How do you feel about that spot? I, I think that it's easier to accommodate finding a three, four end at this point than it seems like it may be easy to, as easy to accommodate a zero tech um, because there isn't a lot of them out there on the open market. I mean, yeah. there's no guys on the streets now you'd go and sign unless you want to consider Akeem Hicks a zero tech, which I, I don't really consider him that at this point, especially that he's so old. Or Dundamakon Sue spent the most of his career as a three tech and he's old as dirt too. And yeah. you, you're, are you going to move him? No. So um, I, it, it's kind of easier to find the three, four end. You could go sign to Jadavian Clowney right now, move him in as a three, four end and a four I, and I think he'll be just fine over there if you really wanted to. So you could, you could address that if you need to, do they need to though, Dan, that's the part where we're going to have to find once they put the pads on with this, where's Mike Morris at in his development. Yeah. I'm actually a, a really relatively high guy on miles mm -hmm. Adams. Um, I, I, I tend to find him to be a guy that is, you know, not a raw rough guy, but a guy that's improved and who last year was really starting to come along last year. He wasn't really put in there for a lot of snaps because they were committed to the Puna Ford, Quentin Jefferson, Al Woods, Shelby Harris kind of train. So there was only so many snaps in there for him to get last year. But when he was on the field, um, I thought he played pretty well and he might be a guy ready to kind of step forward. And I'm not talking about just be a cog within the rotation. It's about creating rotation here. It was back in the day in 2013. That's what we're trying to do here. It's more than just the starters. So those two guys and where they're at in their development, I think really is, is what's going to instruct you on whether or not you need to do it. But I, I like having to go get that rather than the, the, than the zero tech. And the one other thing mm -hmm. I'll say is that remember too, Dan, they love those, they love those two man fronts last year. Yeah. So those those college two man fronts, those I, I hate them for for every every fiber of my being. But nonetheless, if you're going to run those two man fronts, there's less of a necessity to have 
the ends because I know you're, you're putting two DL linemen on. You're not even having an end on at the point, you know, because you have your outside linebackers in, in a wide nine technique at that point. So, yeah. you know, you, if you're running 30% of your snaps like that, you know, that takes out 30% need of the snaps of having those guys even on the field. And there's some things we haven't seen yet. Uh, Austin Fielu, who Bob Condota said the staff is pretty high on, the, the XFL player, former Oregon Duck, has been banged up. Uh, he's on the pup list. We haven't seen him yet. It could open an opportunity for a guy like MJ Anderson, the undrafted free agent out of Iowa State. Um, but would, would you feel better if if they still do they still need to add a body up there? Yeah. I, I, and I'm not, I'm not pressing in it and that this has got to be done ASAP. This is like everyone pull the fire alarms in the building. Cause it's, we need to get them here. Yeah. Not to that degree, but I think that you do need to, before the trade deadline, if we want to put it out to that far, look to make a move. If you want to be a contender, would you, um, are you, would you be pro, uh, Shelby Harris coming back? I'd be okay with it. I honestly would like to see a bit of a bigger swing of a move. Hmm. I, I, I mean, Shelby last year, um, it was a mixed bag. I, yeah. I mean, he was obviously, I think, our highest rated defensive lineman last season. I don't think he kind of gave you the same kind of pass rush that they got from him in Denver. He was a pretty good run defender, so I'll give him that. He showed up all over the place at times when he's on the field as a run in run defense. Was a little banged up, getting a little bit older. Part of me kind of was like, is there is there maybe another kind of bigger move we can make? If somebody's cut at the deadline, you know, this year it's going to be a big wave of cuts from 90 to 55 all at once. Will there be maybe a better guy at that point or a a trade option where you can flip a guy for a fifth rounder, but you're getting a guy you're basically taking on a salary that a team doesn't want to pay because yeah. they've had a young guy step forward. I, I tend to, that's why I like to have the patient approach on this more than the pressing to get the hell, Shelby Harris in the house, because I go by waiting, you might get the better asset and it may not cost you a lot. You get the sort of the depressed cost to get that really much more improved asset in the building. Well, certainly they've, with this new rule cutting all the way from 90 to 53, it, it, it creates another wave of free agency. And what I suspect, especially as much as we know about John Schneider and how he likes to operate, <laughs> is a lot of GMs will be burning up the phone lines in the day or two before the cut down, trying to, trying to trade some low draft picks for guys and, and get them before they're exposed to waivers. So there's, there's going to be players available at that, at that point. I agree. And I think it's John Schneider's wheelhouse too, because yeah. like he does with the undrafted free agents, he's talked about it. I like the chaos. I wish the draft was one day, right? <laughs> he said stuff like that where he's, he kind of, that's in his mode where I think other general managers get a little bit probably stressed. I would, I'd be like, I'd want yeah. more time. You know I mean? I like, I like the three cut down phases if I'm a general manager so I can slowly pick through, sift through what I want, you yeah. know, and it, it's going to be, what is it? Uh, so we got 45 times 32. That's a lot of players. players <laughs> that's a lot of one day a all big waiver wire to sift through. Uh, so we just talked about the entire defensive line, and we didn't even talk about the guy who signed the biggest free agent contract as an outside free agent under the Carolyn Schneider regime. Uh, there are some people who are concerned that we'd spend all that money on Draymond Jones, and he is a pass rusher, but weak against the run. Where do you stand on that? I think the weakness in the run is a little bit overstated. He's not bad. I, any kind of time that you have an off a defense that's dealing with an offense that's a – the highest ineptitude order for a couple of seasons period. That means you, you've seen this before where you have a, a strong defense and a crappy offense. We've seen it with RCX at times when they've been this way, mm. where the uh, the defense is strong through the first two quarters, but the offense is three and out city every single time they're on the field. You get halfway into about the third quarter of that stuff going on and the defense starts to yeah. break. And how do they break? It's usually on the back of uh, teams running down their throat at that point because they're up in the game because the offense can't score because they're three and out. So 
I'm not putting all the blame on that, but let's go back and see what, what do we know about Denver last year, you know, with Russ, you know, that they would have been, I think it went through the first 10 games, nine and one, if they had scored 19 points, mm-hmm. uh, every single game. And so he, that, that defense as a whole, I would, I would reckon to guess, Dan, if you looked at all of, let's say the PFF grades on run defense for that defense, all the way down the line last year, it might show porous, but I think the reputation around the league and how they're viewed around the league and their, their abilities in that respect has looked a little bit better where teams would account for that. It's like, look, you're putting them out on the, on the field for all of these extra snaps. They got to roll because the offense can't keep itself up to snuff. That's, that's going to cause those numbers to go down. Like, like Uchenna playing too many snaps, like, you know, Pete referenced. Uchenna yeah. was like a 71 grade. He would have been a guy higher graded by PFF, more held in higher acclaim, but he got wore down as the year one because they had to have all those snaps that they gave to him. So he's not great in run, but he's not necessarily bad in run. Um, I like the deal well enough. Uh, my only issue with it, Dan, a little bit is that, you know, with the way we play these contract number games, a little bit it bothers me at times because it's a multitude of one, two, three-year deals. And we end up eating up a lot of our cap very, very quickly. Yeah. And we're not able to spread this money out. And when I look at the two deals between Draymond Jones and Javon Hargrave, Hargrave signs to the Cowboys on a four-year, $80 million deal, $20 million a year. You have Draymond Jones on a three-year deal at $17.5 million per year. So... You have one guy who's actually making more technically total money. I know NFL contracts are what they are, but here with this deal at Javion Hargrave, this year's cap hit with the Niners as they're in their Super Bowl window, as they're going for it this year, is $5.5 million. Your cost for Draymond Jones is 10.1, almost yeah. double. So you could have almost fit two players. And we know this on the back of they were trying to get that Zach Allen kid who I loved out of the Cardinals who yeah. ended up going to Denver. Yep, same. It's like if you had if you put the extra year on there, if you had squished down the numbers a little more, did you have the offer to make over the top to bring in Zach Allen? And yeah. if we're talking about Zach Allen and Draymond Jones as the two fixture pieces you brought in this offseason for that defensive line, we feel pretty doggone good about what what they did. It is frustrating as a as as kind of a geeky type fan, the ones that love to watch, you know, over the cap and and uh, spot track and kind of think about 24 and 25 and 26 is two years in a row now, the fan base has thought, you know, gosh, I love I love the draft this year, but also next year we have so much cap space. And then the way that they structure these deals is they use that so that they can, you know, make things happen responsibly this year. Um, for sure. It, it's before we move off the defensive line, I want to get your thoughts on Quick question with you. Yes. Do you feel like too that that's a potential situation that, you know, when we talk about down the future with the way the teams and what they're doing now to get to Super Bowls and, yeah. and going this opposite approach, do you have any concern long-term about this team as it reaches into contender status? If they're dealing with this, what I would call a disadvantage of being forced from the top down to kind of run these deals out, because this has been a trend going back to that, remember that Greg Olson free agency year yeah. where it was all, it was Greg Olson and Ben Samayoa and Bruce Irvin and Jaron Reed on a one-year deal. And it was, they've been doing it since then kind of, right? Yeah. Where do you stand on that long-term? Do you think they can still work around it because the team will just be so talented and good? Or do you think that could be the thing that's uh, could end up becoming an issue down the line? It's tough, and and I don't mean to take the easy way out, but I kind of sit on the fence. And I'll use, I'll throw another baseball analogy at you. We've got the trade deadline uh, tomorrow, and the big debate, if you're a Mariner fan, is do they sell, do they buy, or do they kind of do both? And uh, you know, I can see both sides of it. As a fan, would I love it if if Jerry Depoto went out and made a big swing and brought in a big bat, and if it meant giving up a guy like Logan Gilbert that we that has so much value to us? Sure, if it brought the right guys back in return. But I also kind of want to hang on to that future and, and not dip into our core too much. I can see what other teams do and some of the swings that they make when it seems like they're being reckless with the salary cap, but yet every year they're able to really add impact that can, that can influence the roster and their ability to win now. Um, but I think we've seen this team, I'll put it this way, I guess, I prefer their current approach to the one 
that brought us Jamal Adams. I don't want to see those kinds of deals anymore. I just don't want mm-hmm. to see those big swing for the fences, mortgage the future, um, potentially be reckless to bring in one guy that you think can put you over the top. Unless the roster is in that spot where they just need one guy and it makes sense at that time. So I, I f- tend to favor this approach. We'll so if you, got, if you got the Chiefs calling you tomorrow and they say, hey, hey, uh-oh, hey, hey, uh-oh. Dan. What hey, do we got? Dan, hey, we're, this Chris Jones thing ain't going nowhere with these negotiations right now. Okay. And we need, uh, we need some edge rush help. I want to get a backup for Travis Kelsey. He's getting a little bit up there in age. Um, why don't you throw us Fanton Taylor and kick me, in a, kick me in a one and we'll throw you Chris Jones. 100%. So you're, yeah, for, if you're talking an elite, no-brainer, no-doubt talent that you know is going to elevate your team and give you a better chance to win a Super Bowl, yeah, I'm doing that. Yeah. Me too. So yeah. uh, I just I wanted just, to grab that one because I know that's the outlier. <laughs> I went with the extreme one, brother. I know I, right. I did that thing. You're not supposed to I mean, that's $30 million a year, but, you know, if you want to make it happen, I, you can make it happen. I, I, yeah, and I mean, it would hurt to spend that kind of money, but at the same point in time, it's like that guy on this defense and adding him to this defensive line at this point would yeah. be – you know, I, I, if I can go find that kind of equivalent move. And I'm with you on that. I don't like the Jamal. I think what stands out to me about making a deal like that and the, what they've done in recent years with the Jamal and Jimmy Graham situation was this way as well. If you're going to go make a move for a player like that, uh, Jamal's injury situation is hard to see coming, but use them right. Yeah. Use them in the correct fashion. Yeah. Put them in the position to succeed. Don't force fit them into your system a little bit like we've done in the past. And uh, that hopefully they've learned their lesson with that. I think they have. They're already with, if they try to get Jamal back with this defense, they're, you, you can see the changes to this defense and what it's doing and having him go back to a little bit of what he did with the Jets, that they're trying to put him into those kind of positions now. But it'd be good to do that from day one. It's like they did the same with Jimmy Graham. It's like inline tight end, inline tight end, inline tight end. Okay, we'll make your move tight end. Like, do yeah, <laughs> yes, that what, makes that's, it. That, that, that gives me PTSD. I just, I know, I'm thinking about that whole situation well, still. Yeah, and I can understand why I said no more of this. I after doing it twice over, you're just like, dude, it, this isn't hard, you know? He's, yeah, he's a, he's a slot receiver 67 percent of the time. That's how the Saints are using him and I, on the slot. I think you could see that, you know, lessons learned kind of play into how they approach the draft this year. I think there were opportunities for them to be aggressive and move up or down and, and, and uh, do some things. And they just decided to stand pat and stick to their plan. So um, yes, yeah. we'll see what's next. I think the team did a great job of learning lessons in recent years, something yeah. that they didn't do through kind of the 15 to 20 period. It was absolutely, we, we ain't lose. We ain't learning Jack shit, you know, Jack's Jack's not, but yeah. you know, you know, now it's like they've started to me started to go, okay, we got to fix these things. It was almost like a course change with the the Wilson off season, where it's like we're fixing this, this, this. We're changing our approach here. It's been very encouraging to see. Well, and I think maybe the best example of that is what they've done at the edge spot and the outside linebacker spot, because for three, four years in a row, like you were talking about, those years that they kept signing, you know, Carlos Carlos Dunlap and bringing in Kerry Hiders and bringing back Mayo and Irvin at an old age coming off an injury, that you know you kept hearing Pete in your sleep over and over say, "Can't have enough edge rushers, can't have enough." Well, they never had enough. Yeah, uh, and now they've just devoted so many resources to it that they seem like they're stacked up pretty deep for the next couple of years. So hopefully, those lessons will be applied to some other positions too. Let's talk about linebacker um, because I think this was a spot that a lot of fans were concerned going into the year. Love the return of Bobby, but wonder how much he has left in the tank. You know, Devin Bush didn't cost a lot, but some concerns about which player we're getting, right? The one pre-injury that looked so good as a rookie for Pittsburgh or the one that got benched at the end of the season last year. Hadn't heard much about his performance in camp until he came up with a really nice pick in that seven-on-seven red zone drill uh, yesterday. Uh, But what has stood out to me the last couple of days is 
uh, multiple reporters cover the Seahawks watching practice talking about how shocked they are at how good Bobby Wagner looks. Uh, that he was covering, I think it was DJ Dallas on a wheel route or a, a slant and go yesterday, and that he looked as fast, if not faster, than he has in years. Um, that he doesn't look anything like a player who's slowing down. Are you buying that? Yeah, but it's there's a bias here from my standpoint because I I didn't I was never in on the train with anybody this offseason that was, you know, there was a good amount of people out there shading Bobby and the Seahawks fandom as far as where he is as a player. And and it's not just they weren't being disrespectful, just their honest assessment of where he was as a player at this point. But in my opinion, it was really silly and and kind of also easy to then kind of figure out who's watching tape and who's not. I can learn really quickly on sometimes some people's opinion on you. You ain't checking out any all 22. There's you're not looking into any of this tape. You've watched right. the game once in your mind and you don't know you've, you've not gone and revisited any of it back because yeah. you go back and you look at Bobby Wagner last year with the Rams and the Rams were putting him in a position to succeed. But there's a reason why he was the highest graded player by PFF last year. And I'm not trying to lean on that as the ultimate end all be all. The right. eye test also backed this up. You got to use them all to me. I'm not just a PFF guy, but it's a, it is a tool to use along with your eye test, along with all 22 tape, which will show you the clear view of what's going on, especially when you get that one from the background where you can see exactly what the linebacker's seeing, exactly what he's doing pre-snap and figure it out. And his instinctiveness was next level. Mm-hmm. He still didn't show moments where you're seeing him just getting completely, you know, beat by, you know, running backs or when on covers like, Dallas so he's still able to stay is he going to be like prime Bobby where Bobby could cover Randall Cobb 45 yards down the field um, out of the slot you know no but you're not usually going to ask middle linebackers do that anyway so yeah you know I I am I'm not the least bit surprised he looks good he still looked good last year he's not prime Bobby but he's still there's a reason he's at that grade you don't just get handed that grade people last year were like well he was kind of a reputation like PFA was just like well we're going to give him a legacy grade with Bobby or something they don't do that then they don't do that and it's it the tape was impressive with them last year and the thing that stands out Dan for me that really gave me the confidence with them is I watch other linebackers and especially when you go from Bob from Jordan and Cody Barton to going and watching Bobby 22 tape you're watching Jordan and, and, and Barton deer in the headlights post-snap. Hmm. <laughs> and a, a little bounce, a late bounce over to a side as they just still try to read it post-snap, another a, a beat and a half after the snap has come. Bobby, <laughs> he's right down there before the snap. Yeah. And it's going to where the play is going. He is right heads up to where that hole is going. And he's blowing the kind of blowing the play up, putting an extra body where the offense is not accounted for there to be an extra body at that point prior to the snap. So the inst- he may not have the speed, but the instinctiveness gives him the two steps faster where the Cody Barton, Jordan Brooks are a step slower despite them being probably technically faster. They're quicker than Bobby at this point because their instincts aren't there. They don't have that necessarily same feel that Bobby does. So only thing I hope, Dan, the one thing I hope, though, is that the, the coaching staff, in the same spirit we talked about with this Jamal Adams situation, is looks to put Bobby and, and replicate what Bobby did there with the Rams. See what they did as the model there with him. It's not forcing in you into your system Let's run cover two and have Bobby going 30 yards straight up through between the two seams. Yeah. It's not that. What you want to do is put him around the line of scrimmage. Let him be that play record down here. Let him blitz. Bobby had the most sacks in his career last year with the Rams. I think that's a pretty eye-opening statistic. This long into his career, he's had the most sacks. Why? Because the Rams blitzed him. Why? Because that's a really big, good part of his game. Use it. Use it. So, you know, and the nice part about this, Dan, is you don't have to stretch too hard or be too imaginative if you're the Seahawks in this respect of things because the Rams run the very same defense you do. Yeah. Very same defense you do. So it's just an easy translation, easy translation now to try to, to me, put Bobby in that position, and hopefully they do. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. 
Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Now, one other change that we're hearing about, Miles Adams talked about it pretty extensively yesterday after practice, is uh, change in technique up front. And uh, if you could just speak to that a little bit and how much you're looking forward to seeing that maybe as early as Friday in the mock game, that the the, the former technique, and I'm not as uh, adept a X and O guy as you are, but uh, Al Woods even spoke about it in Jets camp a couple weeks ago. It was one of the reasons he moved on because he got bored in that system of mirroring, yeah. right? And and basically basically occupying blockers as opposed to attacking. Well, now it sounds like they're going more to that. And that's the reason for, and fans still wring their hands over this, we don't have a, we don't have enough big guys. We need some 330-pounders. Well, it sounds like the new technique up there is to penetrate more, shoot gaps, right? Is that something that you're uh, looking forward to seeing? Well, I think technically, yes, I am looking forward to seeing it. Um, I think even what Al Woods is talking about last year is this is is tough. What we're doing is we're modernizing our approach on the defensive line, but it's not an easy one for defensive linemen. Mm. For years, you two-gapped, which on the defensive line, for the most part, if it's going to be especially an early rundown, if you're attacking the pass rush, they'd get upfield at those points. At third and seven, we know we can get upfield. We don't have to two-gap it. But if it's an early rundown, I'm going to two-gap. And that was what Seattle largely ran for years. You transition to the three, four, and, and this it's called gap and a half is the technique and the term for it. But you transitioned last year with that, but we didn't turn over any of our personnel, right, Dan? I mean, you still had four, three personnel in here. Quentin Jefferson's played most four, three, Puna yeah. Ford, four, three, Al Woods, four, three. So you had guys that were used to two gapping who you're now having to tell, okay, we're not two gapping anymore. And they go, okay, I got it. So I'm single gapping. Not really. Yeah. And it's, it's, <laughs> It's a such a tough, touchy little defense because you technically want to shoot a gap, but you also have to always know where your exit doors are because okay. you've got to still have a way of getting back to the backside gap. And so there's a real feel to it, which can lead you in a feeling as a defensive lineman of feeling like you're playing the two gap without it being a lot of fun because you're actually having to still get up the field technically to a spot while still kind of two gapping. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's a bear on defensive linemen, but it's also what can make defensive lines and defenses really tough to play. When you have a lineman now able to cover that area, he's not just sitting down like you could, if you got a guy, get all, everybody two gapping on the line, you can kind of coordinate around that offensive wise to then attack holes from that two gapping's perspective, especially to the outside runs. If you can kind of get things pinned on the blocks. So it's a touchy, tough defense to deal with, but it's it's going to take time to learn this, I think, for a lot of guys. And your four or three guys weren't probably well acclimated, you know, to really do that. Um, yeah. He is going to that wide nine technique is now Al Woods with Robert Sala there. And the wide nine is different than your typical four three and that it actually lets the defensive lineman get up the football field. Whereas the our old four three defense was more about hunkering down, creating that wall. You know, everybody, you know, mans their gap. But it's it's also the gap and half thing can mess you up too because if guys don't get to their hat backside gap, if they're all just about getting to that one first gap side, that's where those break back cutback holes that we saw that they got gashed in time and time again last year. That's why you hear them like Miles did referenced over and over again, gap integrity, because that's the gap integrity where the player goes to the coach and he says, Yeah, I shot the gap. I was I, I couldn't get quite back to the other thing. Well, you've always got to Where's that exit door? Get, make sure you can get back to the other side because if that back reads and goes in, we don't we don't have anybody there. Everybody's got a even down to the cornerbacks and the safeties. Everyone's got a gap responsibility on the play. This is your gap. That's your gap. That's your gap. So nobody can freelance over to help you if you miss out on yours. Everyone's got it's like the Belichick. Do your job. Your job is this gap responsibility and get it done. 
So it's tough, man. It's I feel for these guys because this is it, it, this is the hardest defensive lineman technique to play, in my opinion. Hmm. I'd much rather be a single gap or two gap guy because then I know what I got to do. Okay. I'm single gapping. I'm getting upfield through this gap. That's what you got me doing. Two gapping. I'm holding my point. So we've talked a lot about the front seven. Let's finish with the backside because this has probably been the uh, most overriding subject of training camp so far, and maybe even all the way through OTAs, is now that all the bodies are there, and and Tariq Woolen isn't even there. He's not even on the field yet. But how much talent they've stacked up in that secondary and how good it seems to be performing through the early part of training camp that even, you know, the last couple of days, Trey Brown has really been a guy that's been the star of the show and getting a lot of ink in how he looked with the extra reps he's getting with Reek out. Uh, still nursing that knee injury. Now that Devin Witherspoon's back and and Michael Jackson being the star of camp so far. I don't even have a question here. I just want you to talk about your thoughts on the secondary. I, I love to see it. Um, I do have a question for you on this in a second because I think it's one of the hot hot items out there in the Seahawks fandom in regards to this as an offshoot a little bit. But uh, I love to see th- their approach to this. I've always been an inside-outside guy when it comes to defense. That's the old approach. You build from inside to the outside, defensive line, linebackers, to then you get back to your back end. New Age Analytics says, nope, you need to be building back to front. And so the Seahawks seem to be leaning into what is supposed to be the new evolution of thinking when it comes to how you build defenses. They've leaned into this with the money they've spent in in the secondary and now building up these corners as they have. Um, Of course, Coach Carroll is the cornerback whisperer. This is one of the things that's always been a hallmark, I think, of him throughout the years. He knows how to teach cornerback play. So bringing these guys along is not surprising to me. I thought Trey Brown, he's gotten lost a little bit, but you take away Tariq Woolen, you take away Richard Sherman. I think Trey Brown had as impressive a rookie year as any cornerback that we've had here in 10 years in his rookie season. I thought he was outstanding that first year, and the injury sucked, and it seems like it took him an extra year to kind of get over it. But it's understandable now, given that time that he comes back and bounces back. He can stack guys receiver-wise. You can't get on top of him. He just has this weird thing where he can always, when he's at his 100, it showed up in that first year, he's always staying in front. Like, you just can't. I'm faster than this guy, but I just can't get up around him. Um, So it's good. Maybe there's a trade potential option here for us, Dan, if, yeah. if we get too big of a stack on this, on that. Um, Michael Jackson's ascent is wonderful to see. He's moving into his prime. It's not surprising. A guy just getting into his prime who's now fully kind of had a couple years in the system is getting better and is improving. And I, the question I'd have for you a little bit, and this is the one that's definitely presented to me a lot in my chat, which is the the Devin Witherspoon pick being almost a failure now if he's kicked to the inside. If he's in the inside. The yeah. Now I hear it and, too. Yeah. And I, and I, it's one that I really kind of rebel against as far as the thought process goes because there's a couple things at play number one it, it sort of is throwing shade at mike jackson for that he can't have improved it doesn't also take into account witherspoon is a rookie and you're not going to play like you play two years down the line in your rookie year no no player does that's just understandable but number three it's also drafting witherspoon for me was a symptom of leaning like you talked about the change of philosophy in the draft towards value and yep. not need yep. that, that that's what you let carry the day you didn't go into that draft of the fifth pick and say you know our cornerback room's fine you know what we really need you didn't do that you said yeah. who's the number one guy on my board and you said get that guy and that's how i want my team to draft Absolutely. that's exactly yeah, how i want that. my team to draft yep so i'm i'm but where do you stand on it as far as uh you're you're concerned or worry with that i want the best players on the field that can help us win at any time and i think uh the the thing that's i get it though you know there there is a perceived value of a guy playing slot um, and we saw it right here with Kobe Bryant. He was drafted to be an outside corner. He played nothing but outside at Cincinnati. And 
And when he was moved inside, it was almost seen as, well, he wasn't good enough to make it outside. So we're going to cover him up by moving inside. Justin Coleman's another example of that. And he excelled once they moved him inside, but he was an outside corner when he came into the league. I, I look at it this way. I I don't see it as a, as an indictment on him at all. I think it speaks to obviously Michael Jackson and how well he's played. Um, and, and also just getting the best players on the field at the same time. And also, what do we know about Devin Witherspoon? His ability to play the run, his ability to attack, and his ability in short area quickness uh, to cover. Some of the best receivers in this league, the most dangerous receivers in this league, and some of these modern offensive schemes are playing guys in the slot. I mean, if you're – Cooper Cup plays so much out of the slot, you want you want Mike Jackson on Cooper Cup, or do you want Devin Witherspoon? taking on guys like that. Look what we're yeah. going to do. And teams having to match up with what Jackson Smith and Jigba offers out of the slot. And Tyler Lockett sometimes when he moves in there. So I have absolutely no problem. Is he, is he, I, I think what, what fans are scared of is, oh, is he going to be a slot receiver for 10 years? And that's, and that's not the case at all. And Pete's even said he's ultimately, he's going to be the long-term left corner with hopefully Reek Woolen for years and years and years on a second contract. Uh, it's just a way for now to get the best players on the field at the, at the same time. And I'm, I'm in favor of it. So, yeah, I agree. Indubitably. I also yeah. think too, he does his best stuff in man coverage, which when you run your typical zone, even our old cover three, if you ran cover three out of uh, three wide receiver or uh, nickel, you're going to run the cover three of the corners on the outside, but your slot guy is oftentimes going to be in man. And one thing Witherspoon talked about when he was drafted, what do you need to work on? Well, I need to work on my zone coverage. This is where we come back to, you know, you put him in the best position to succeed his first year, everything you just said. And, you know, you're also leaning him away from a little bit of the thing that he needs to grow on where he can lean into his strength early on, which yeah. is, you know, not the worst thing. I come back to the final thing on that I come back to, man, is 93% of the snaps was played by your outside corners last year, the defensive snaps. Your slot played 71%, you know, so we're really wringing our hands over about 22% of snaps given on a season at that point because yeah. impact is impact. You're on the field defensively. You know, just because you're not on the outside corner doesn't mean that that slot, like you said, isn't getting more important with the Cooper Cups and the Amon St. Browns and the multi. Hell, just moving even number one wide receivers into the slot, as yeah. many teams do now, to create touches for them like they do. So it's become way more valuable than it used to. Man, good stuff, Brandon. Uh, we covered a lot. We could have covered a lot more. There's some things we didn't even get into, particularly on offense, but we'll save that for another day. Uh, appreciate you coming on the show. Let people know what you got coming up on the Hawks Nest. Uh, we're going to be rolling here on the Hawks Nest. I uh, do two shows a week, so Wednesdays and Sundays, uh, 5 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Um, we're going to be also expanding that on the regular year. I'm going to be doing like a fantasy stream on Saturday um, of this season uh, with my got a new sponsorship with that. So with Underdog Fantasy, going to be running with that during the year. Nice. But uh, other than that, just doing, uh, just uh, as you see, got Seahawk, at Seahawks Nester on Twitter and Hawks Nest on YouTube. You can find me over there, but we be doing a lot, lot of live streams this year. That's for sure. Uh, did a six and a half hour live stream just the other day. So if you haven't checked out Brandy's show, that's the kind of, that's the kind of stuff you can expect from him. Thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you having me in here, Dan. It was a great, had a great time chopping up with you, man. Love to do it again. All right. We'll do it again soon. That's going to do it for today. Remember to follow me on Twitter at Seahawks forever. Like this video and subscribe to the channel and be sure to join me in a couple of days. Corbin Smith of all Seahawks and the locked on Seahawks podcast will be joining me in person. He's here covering training camp. They have a day off on Wednesday. He's joining me in studio. I'll get his thoughts. First person accounts of what he's seeing from the field at VMAC with these Seahawks until then forever and always go Hawks. <laughs>